Hello and welcome to this week's Bosscast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined by the legendary Marcus Mayer. Marcus is the founder at Mark, formerly Mayer Bergman, would be known to many listeners as one of the real estate industry's leading pan-European private equity investors with investments right across the board in residential, commercial offices, retail, and some emerging platforms now in life sciences, urban logistics, and many other things that we'll talk about this morning. Marcus, fantastic to see you. Looking really well, looking really energetic, really vibrant against this backdrop of miserable English weather. How are you doing? What's keeping you busy at the minute? Hi, Andrew. No, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, I was looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously, there's a lot going on in the world. I mean, you know, so if you're asking me what we're busy with right now, I mean, we just came out of COVID that seems to have disappeared completely mm. from the press, from the TVs, from everybody's narrative. And we're right into the next crisis, which is pushing inflation up massively, mm. potentially borrowing costs, you know, making investments in certain sectors much more complicated. So we stay optimistic and I think we're navigating. I think our focus right now in terms of sectors is quite resilient in view of what's happening. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we'll come on to those shortly because I think you know, you've made some really fascinating plays over the last few years with different new platforms for the business, new for you and new for the sector. Some areas where you've taken a really progressive, really market leading position like urban logistics, like residential and other things. But let's dial back a little bit, Marcus, because you've been in the sector for a while now. You've seen a few cycles, you've experienced many, many different cultures. You speak more languages than anyone I've met. Tell us about your story. How did you, you grew up in a real estate family. That must have been pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, tell us about your dad. Tell us about the family business. So yeah, I cut a lot of ribbons, <laughs> basically, <laughs> as I was growing up. So yeah, my father was, a, I would say, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, a very creative developer, a very forward-looking developer. I think the Netherlands was a really good practice ground, sort of a, a good place to do that at the mm. time. And you're because, Dutch and you grew up in the Netherlands. Yeah, exactly. And the Netherlands was just as a government, and I think from a planning perspective, was always very much looking for urban solutions, partially because it is one of the most densely populated places in the world. And so it was much more acute for the Netherlands to find space solutions, whether it was related to mobility, you know, mixed-use developments, yeah. how cities can grow and how they can't grow. And so for... A creative, forward-looking developer, it was a really exciting place for my father to basically grow his business. So in the 1970s, 80s, he was probably the most active mixed-use developer combining different uses. So residential with offices, with cultural uses, mm. meaning museums, theaters, music halls, things like that. Residential, parking, and also oftentimes taking responsibility for the infrastructure changes around those developments. So that was really exciting. And he grew that into a real niche and continued to grow that business, not only in the Netherlands, but also outside the Netherlands. So obviously I was very exposed to that when I was growing up, you know, went to see lots of developments to the construction sites, as I said, cut the ribbons and things like that, which was quite exciting time to time. And after that, you know, I did a law degree in the Netherlands because law in the Netherlands is quite a generalist route to take for studying. Mm. And after that, you know, I had the choice whether I could go and work for a law firm or go and work for you know, at the time, a Shell Petroleum or a Unilever or something like that, big businesses that were then, you know, big yeah. in the Netherlands, or whether I wanted to go into real estate. And, you know, I felt I'd always really loved real estate. I was interested in it. I was intrigued by it. Probably more interested on the investment side than the pure development side. Mm. It's a bit more like, interesting than Imperial Leather Soap or oil. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. 
And definitely, you know, and I, then I'll come back to the legal side of it. But so I was quite adamant that I wanted to do real estate and I didn't want to go out and do something completely different. You weren't forced into it by your dad. It wasn't no, no, not at all. I think he was quite happy to have at least one child that, you know, studied and moved forward as opposed to the other ones. So my father was quite happy for me to take whatever route I wanted to take. But I was adamant that I didn't want to work for my father right away. So I wanted to get experience outside. And then if I ever came back to him, I could contribute something from outside rather than, you know, learning everything in an ecosystem that he'd already created. Yeah. And I wanted to get international experience. I was quite keen not to stay in the Netherlands, which is quite a small country, same weather as London. So I was keen to get out and learn, you know, things that probably were more advanced in abroad, let's say, in places like mm. New York, London. And being multilingual were. really helps that, doesn't it? I mean, that you, helped a lot. Yeah, you've yeah, got five languages? Yeah, six and, six and a little bit of Russian. So, and, so, and so, start, that, so those formative years then, when you were branching out, you know, what did they look like? What were some of the... So my first job was with Heinz, the American developer. And I think, you know, Heinz was one of the first, at the time, I think the first proper developer with global ambitions which was interesting, obviously. I mean, and it was hard sometimes for Heinz to do that, but yeah. they persisted. And obviously now it's a proper global business. But I was there in a really interesting time. So I I'd started working with Jerry Heinz when he moved from Houston to London. And obviously that was, you know, amazingly inspirational because Jerry had built one of the most successful businesses in real estate globally. You know, was a, probably one of the most prolific builders of really iconic office towers throughout the US and outside the US with a really strong focus on quality, yeah. uh, both quality of building, quality of operations, but also on architecture. And that was also a passion of my father. So in that sense, it was kind of a logical move, but to get the exposure to Jerry, I think was sort of you know unique at the time because we had a really small office and I got to spend a lot of time with him. Hmm. The issue that Heinz had at the time was that they didn't have committed capital, let's say, to make investments in Europe. Yeah. And so every time we found a deal, we had to try to find co-invest which obviously if you're just learning as an analyst or an associate, yeah. that's kind of holding back your development a little bit. So, And at the time, where was their capital largely North American domiciled? Mostly North American. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you found a deal and then you had to go and find either high net worth capital or institutional capital, but it was not easy. Yeah. But I worked on some really interesting deals, but basically we wanted to ideally get exposure in a place where things were more fast moving. So where there was capital available and where, you know, you could work within a really smart team and where you got access to deals across Europe. And so I moved to Goldman Sachs to what was then called the Real Estate Principal Investment Area, which is yeah. part of the Merchant Banking Division. Yeah, yeah. And that was at the time, you know, probably the most exciting place to be. You know, we raised significant pools of capital every year and kind of deployed that following where the opportunities were in Europe. So I got exposure to France, to Germany, to Italy, to Spain, to offices, to hotels, to shopping centers to residential and working with really, really smart people. So, uh, you know, I think it was a very, for me, a very exciting progression, learning the real real estate basics at Heinz and then really topping that up with some really good analytical know-how, financial mm. know-how at Goldman Sachs. And let's talk about design and architecture because that was a big element. That was a huge piece of your father's DNA. And for you as an entrepreneur, for Mark, it's very much part of the mark DNA. You, you can always spot a mark scheme a mile off because of the attention to detail, the extra ambition that you have, you know, on the small stuff, which makes the difference. Tell us about some of your inspirations there. And also let's talk about some of your inspirations from the art world, because that's another big part of your own background, your own interest, which has a huge influence on the business, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think you're right. And it starts sort of with early influences in your life when you're growing up in your very formative years, let's say. 
doing potato prints at age three on the on no, the... no, my grandfather was a developer as well. So he built a lot of residential and hotels in the Netherlands after the Second World War because obviously big parts of the country were destroyed. And he was a really big art collector for that time. So when we visited his home, which was almost every Sunday, which wasn't always fun, but literally every inch on the wall was covered with a painting. And he mixed everything together. So from old master paintings, from Flemish old masters, to impressionists, to more contemporary, and the same thing with bronzes and things like that. So the house was like a, a treasure trove of different arts and different types of art expression. Hmm. And I think that that really forms your interest in art and in architecture and you know your aesthetic, let's say, direction in a way. And so I was always very keen on that. And my parents, the same, my mother studied art history, so it sort of ran in my part of the family as well with my parents and my brothers and my sister. And so the interest in architecture that my father had, working with people like Michael Graves, Johnson, some of the really large firms, Foster and Partners, etc. I think that I kind of had that interest already when I was in high school. So before I started to work in real estate. And you're absolutely right that I think we tend to focus in our business on schemes that have really expressive and at least for me, attractive architecture, because I just feel that if we invest in something where I like to go personally, where I would like to go as a consumer or as an office tenant or as a resident, mm. you know, I feel more comfortable that other people will like that too, rather than you know, not caring about the way it looks very much and then hoping that people like it anyway. Yeah. So I think that's one thing. And then the second thing is on the art side, you mentioned it already. So yeah, I'm really personally strongly interested and so is my wife in contemporary art. It's getting more contemporary all the time. So I really like we can talk about NFTs in a minute. We'll come on to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm really interested in both investing in more established artists, but also investing in, you know, much more up and coming artists. And yeah, I guess like architecture, I have a pretty strong focus, I think, on the technique and the detail that the artist uses in painting, you know, so going to the studio, seeing how they do their work, how long it takes them sometimes to do one painting or a sculpture. I think that's something that you know, for me, makes that artist a lot more interesting. And also the ability of an artist, I think, to continue to develop and to evolve. You have artists that basically go through so many phases during their career, mm. and every time there's something new and there's a new direction. And that, I think, is similar to architecture in a way. It's almost like redesigning a building multiple times or an architect that continues to evolve in what they do and what they like and how they look yeah, at you know, I mean, the future. Yeah, it's the fabric of different cities, isn't it? That evolution of buildings. I mean, we were talking about this last year on the Bosscast with Brian Bickle from Shaftesbury, which owns most of Soho, or a lot of it anyway. Soho Estates probably wouldn't agree with that statement. For Brian was making that point that buildings are purely envelopes for different uses and over many years they do evolve. But talking about evolution, Marcus. Your business has been on a huge evolutionary process over the last four or five years. There's the really successful rebrand to Mark, the launching of several new platforms. Do you want to just talk us through that evolution from the genesis of Mayor Bergman to where we are now with Mark? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, as you know, changes in the world are taking place faster and faster. And it's more difficult, let's say, to prepare for changes that are happening because that change comes so quickly now. You know, whether it's technology-driven, mm. economically-driven, geopolitically-driven, it doesn't really matter, but things change so fast and you need to be able to adapt to it. You know, so if you had a business, let's say, in the 1950s, you could pretty much keep doing what you're doing very well for 40 years and not really change your model very much. I mean, think about a GE, for example, and you didn't really have to adapt that quickly because things were kind of all on a pretty straight trajectory to be able to drive your growth. I think that that's changed dramatically now. 
you know, personally, you need to be able to adapt to those changes very quickly and you need to have a business that's able to quickly adapt to those changes. Otherwise, you know, you'll just find yourself running behind the curve. And that's dangerous, I think, in the current environment. So we saw all the changes that, you know, were coming already in the early sort of 2010s in terms of retail, obviously Amazon, the e-commerce effect, both on retail and on logistics. And you might recall that our initial focus was quite heavily on retail, particularly inner city retail. But we stopped buying retail assets really in the middle of the 2010s. So before a lot of other people did, because I think we we felt that those trends weren't going to get any more positive. You know, the trends were continuing to get negative and have a depressing value on occupancy and on rents. Yeah. And so, yeah, pivoting away from that was became sort of a very urgent thing for us to do around 2014-15. Yeah. But by this point, you know, there were a few different platforms within Mayer Bergman at that time. You had Mayer Homes that was your housing play. You had Veer Outlets that was at the time very, very successful. And this evolution that you've been on, this journey you've been on over the last few years into urban logistics, in some way was effectively holding the mirror up to retail. I mean, hey, retail, what does the future of retail look like? And it's the opposite of a high street shop, right? It's the last mile warehouse. Yes. Yeah, 100%. But I think it's also just intellectual curiosity, I guess, that, you know, you don't, like, my. it was never my ambition to be a specialist in one single sector for the rest of my career. Not because you might be very successful at that, and a lot of people are, mm. but I think just from an intellectual curiosity perspective, I think I was always interested to learn and to develop skill sets and know-how in other sectors, rather than being the best retail or the best industrial or yeah. the best residential person. So, and I think the team... At Mark is a reflection of that intellectual curiosity. So I think everybody is very keen to learn about new directions, set up these new platforms, develop their know-how in a sector. And I think that's another big factor other than just being driven by evolutionary change in the industry. Mm. So it was really a coming together of those two. So when we started investing in Via Outlets, which was the outlet platform, you know, we felt that outlets were more resilient to change than the traditional shopping center assets, which I think has proven to be the case through the e-commerce boom and the COVID crisis. But I think the other thing that drove us there was we just had a strong interest in understanding that outlet retail business better, but also actually in developing our ability to be able to build another business relatively quickly. So Via Outlets grew in a period of basically four years from you know basically one employee to 250 employees and 14 outlet centers throughout Europe. And I think that that building that business, you know, putting the people in the right places, the right people in the right places, buying the right assets, operating those assets, and then exiting it, I think that that's set the tone in a way for the platforms that we've set up since then. And that key point there is operating the assets, isn't it? Which goes back to what you were saying about Heinz in that retrospective there. And that's arguably the biggest shift that we've seen during your career, is this move from simply being an investor in you know, a quasi-fixed income play with having to roll your sleeves up, get your hands dirty and, and be part of the genuine asset management muscle. Yeah, 100%. And I think the impact of technology has been huge as well, right? So I think technology has made it more efficient to run buildings. It means that it's not just a question of throwing people at it, but it's actually finding the right interplay between people and technology to be able to run your operations more efficiently and ultimately for the yeah. user to have a better experience. So let's move on to some of the projects that you're involved with. We were talking a little bit earlier about landmark architecture. And in terms of your portfolio at the minute, there's nothing more landmark than the Whiteley, former Whiteley Shopping Centre in Queensway, which is a, a wonderful building in a largely forgotten 
area nestled between Hyde Park and Notting Hill, a fabulous location. You're having some amazing success with pre-sales on the apartments there. Talk us through your vision for that project, because I mean, that's a real legacy project that you'll have when it's finally complete pretty soon. And there's some amazing work being done using off-site construction methods, some amazing attention to detail on the architecture. And talk us through the vision for that, anyone not familiar with the Whiteley. So I lived in that area since almost since I moved to London. And so every time I visited that building when it was still a shopping center, you know, you, your hands just started to itch because the building has such good bones, floor-to-ceiling heights, the spaces, the architecture of the front facade, for example, that it just seemed like a huge waste. And the idea that you could turn that building into something, you know, let's say give it a new lease of life, but a proper new lease of life, and um, using all of the strengths that the building had, but obviously combining it with much better plans, much better uses, much better spaces, much better Mm -hmm. architecture in the back, getting rid of the multi-story car park in the back and things like that. I think that was something that every time I visited that building, you know, that kind of gnawed at me. And so when we had the opportunity to buy, it was kind of a no-brainer, you know. So we felt that these opportunities come up very, very rarely. Obviously, there was a significant planning risk in getting it through planning to turn it into a major mixed-use building. The other factor that I think really attracted me to it personally was that there isn't really a really iconic residential building in London other than one Hyde Park, which I think is iconic for, in many cases, the wrong reasons in terms of, you know, the people that it sold its apartment to, the architecture, the location, you know, right on between two busy roads. So, and the fact that it's mainly known as the most expensive apartment building in the world. Yeah, it's certainly a very divisive project. Yeah. We still feel very strongly that there isn't really a building like the Whiteley in London, which combines hospitality with unique apartments in terms mm. of size. And it's a genuine mixed-use play. It isn't yeah. just apartments, is it? So talk exactly. us through the leisure elements, because that's a big part of it. And that's a really new offering for London. Uh, 100%. So I think most people used to think as, you know, gyms and pools and things like that in apartment buildings as kind of an afterthought. I think we want to make sure that we can really attract families, not people that live abroad and just want to spend, you know, a weekend a year in London, but families actually living in the building, using the kids' club, using the paddle court, using the gym, the spa, the pool, Mm. and the lounge spaces and the Six Senses Club. So the building basically becomes a big part of your day-to-day life. It's almost like an urban version of what our good friend John Hitchcock is doing at the lakes. Exactly, exactly. And a little bit in the residential sense what John is trying to do with Olympia as well. So really creating that ecosystem you know, where people feel safe, mm. where people have the necessary services, where people can park, yeah. you know, underground rather than having to park on the street. And it's a stone throw from Hyde Park, you know? And it's close to Hyde Park. So, so for, yeah. for me, for me, I think that building, all the basics were there. And the key thing was just obviously executing the plan in terms of getting it through planning with the right architects. And then hopefully selling in a market that's quite positive rather than in a very difficult market. Yeah, yeah. But things are going really well. And I think because there is a lack of product in that part of the market, there's a lot of interest even now. And I think London residential, quality residential that has a good array of individual design traits to it will always be really resilient. I fully agree. And I think the the other thing is that a lot of the people that we're selling to in Whiteleys wouldn't be people that would consider moving to Knightsbridge or Mayfair or even Marylebone. They want to stay in West London but the only alternative really for them to buying in widely is buying a semi-detached house or a terraced house or a freestanding house. Yeah, I mean, it's much more like St. John's Wood in the DNA of the place, isn't it? The kind of walkable family kind of place rather than sort of 
exclusive showy it's a bit exactly. more a bit more grit not too much grit but it's a bit less showy than notting hill yeah, yeah, I mean, I like the fact that... No pe- offence to all the people listening that <laughs> clearly live in Notting Hill, of which there are many. I mean, I like the fact that Queensway still has a very sort of cosmopolitan feel in terms of the restaurants, in terms of the people, in terms of the tube stations. and yeah, the Karaoke, arcade machines, <laughs> Chinese restaurants. Exactly. So I like that combined with the luxury that Whiteley's offers, because I think it's just more interesting for people to live there than to live next to Harrods, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the other really strong design-led project that people will know as part of the Mark Stable is Barry Yards, which is your extension to the historic market. And that, again, it's a fascinating revival of this sort of patch of industrial <laughs> wasteland right next to the river, right next to Barry Market, that was somehow just sort of sat there dormant for countless years. And you've unpicked some, you know, you've done some amazing stuff, unpicking some of the old arches there, carving out a new series of walkways, some amazing office space that charlie green at the office group is taking and then a blend of different restaurant and retail spaces there that's just really opened up that whole space hasn't it so yeah like you said really exciting project in basically bringing back an original urban fabric and as you said it's been a wasteland for you know probably since the middle ages because obviously the south bank of london wasn't the wealthiest part of the city no Uh, no these were the slums exactly so we've tried to bring back that grittiness in the architecture and in the way it's designed, and the old streetscape. But and obviously, the architects there, Spark, Trevor Morris and his team at Spark, have done a fantastic job fantastic there, job. haven't they? Yeah, yeah, and we're great fans of Trevor, and I know he's working with, you know, John Hitchcock's as well on the Olympia scheme. So, And it was a really good collaboration. I think he loves those kinds of projects where you bring the old and the new together, you know, in terms of the detailing of the brickwork, the design, the colours. So that scheme is super exciting. I mean, we were immediately sold on the location, just because of the annual visitors to Borough Market, but also the people that basically walk along the Thames, basically from, let's say, Tower Bridge all the way to the London Eye and everything that's in between. And then you have all the people working in the city across the bridge, basically, you know, law firms, banks, consulting firms, accounting firms, et cetera, et cetera, that are looking for places to have breakfast, lunch, dinner, and for people to visit in the weekend. So yeah. There was also a very logical extension of Borough Market where Borough Market offers the food basically that, you know, you can pick up at one of the stands. But then if you want to have dinner, if you want to have lunch, but you want to have a sit down place, then we offer that in Borough Yard. So so you were really excited about it. I mean, all of the F&B spaces, as you know, have been fully taken up and, and and we wish we had the opportunity to do more. And now we're in active discussions to lease the rest of the retail space. And I think once the Everman Cinema has opened, which looks fantastic as well and has done really well because there's really no competing cinema within a pretty big range from there. So yeah, it's a very different from Whiteley's, but as you say, it has sort of the similar trademarks in terms of design focus and creating that real mixed-use community. Yeah, and, and ultimately these things both tap into your wider network and the stratosphere that Mark exists within. And, and they align really nicely with schemes that you've got in Oslo, in Rome and in Paris, where you have a blend of different projects that are reusing old buildings in Paris, for example, where the, you've been going great guns there. We could talk all day about Paris, but let's move on from commercial retail and offices. Let's talk about the slightly less sexy world of sheds, if we may, but it's less sexy for some, but actually for other people, it's the absolute centerpiece of the catwalk right now from a performance perspective. Now, you launched Crossbay several years ago. It was one of the first pan-European urban logistic 
platforms, something that's been hugely successful for you. And again, as we were discussing earlier, there's an element of holding the mirror up to retail. What are you now seeing happening in the urban logistics and the logistics markets? And what does the future look like for Crossbay? That's a very good question. So I think that um, supply is drying up in most core European logistics locations. So in terms of supply for potential tenants. And obviously that's challenging for occupiers. It's challenging for landlords. And one of the big natural benefits in a way that this urban logistics space has is that you can't really build anymore because obviously it is within the urban fabric. So unless you start enlarging the city further and further, then you can build more. But then by definition, you get farther away from the city center. So there's a scarcity of that supply that's kind of inherent to where it is. The alternative use value of these spaces is usually higher than the logistics because you can go up when you build resi, you can go up when you build offices, you can go Mm, up when you build student housing and create a lot more space. So it has some characteristics that make it, you know, much more resilient in a way than a big box logistics location far outside the city where somebody can literally build a better box right next to you and offer a slightly lower rent and then you lose your tenant. So we like that dynamic. Because there's such scarcity of space and because obviously e-commerce has continued to grow so fast, the tenant demand has continued to increase massively for those scarce spaces. Yeah. And so you see like occupancy in most of these markets is pretty close to 100%. Yeah. Um, and what people don't recognize is that there's a huge disparity across different European markets around the take-up of e-commerce. And we take for granted in England that we're, you know, we like to think we're really progressive everything in England. Of course we do, but we're, we're secretly very not. <laughs> but one area where we actually are is, you know, we're pretty lazy British people, aren't we, Marcus? You say this as, as a Dutchman. <laughs> we're pretty lazy here. We, we, you know, we love ordering stuff from Amazon and deliveries at our desks in the offices. But actually, there are many, many geographies across Southern Europe that are way behind, aren't there? 100%. And those are catching up fast, which you can imagine as people kept more comfortable with e-commerce as they become more used to it and they have less time to have long lunches and things like that it's it's just a lot to some of your colleagues in france (laughs) and italy Uh, so it's growing more and more quickly so the southern european countries are definitely catching up and the central european countries as well i think the trend for the next couple of years as you were saying is i think the next couple of years is definitely going to be much more driven by rental, you know, the performance will be much more driven by rental growth Mm. because of that scarcity and the demand keeps increasing. One of the interesting things, obviously, is in view of everything that's happening in the market now with high inflation rates and, you know, oil and gasoline prices shooting up is that will make the last mile, it will make that whole delivery part more expensive if you're, you know, a customer. So I think you'll see inflation through both rental growth in the last mile facilities, but also the price of gas going up a lot. Because the biggest part of the last mile cost is the trip, basically, by car or van. Yeah. I mean, energy prices are going up generally, but I think it will just further pressurize the push towards EV, towards electric cars, getting your energy from, uh, you know, solar power. So I think the next few years as well, there will be a lot more focus from us as well on driving environmental efficiency within our last mile facilities, both to depress that additional cost of caused by inflation somewhat. All of the dependency on oil that you see now from different countries is just making the case for alternative energy much more important. Mm -hmm. So I think the next couple of years, the performance of this specific sector will be more driven by rental growth than by yield compression. Which is ironic, given that 
industrial real estate was always a sector that was infamous for never having any rental growth. No, 100%. Uh, but I think it's now to the point where, you know, you can build much more and the tenants are still able and willing to pay higher rents. And there's no alternative really for that last mile space. So I think just that pressure is causing rents to go up now. And if you look at the US, the US over the last couple of years in, in sort of key last mile logistics zones, yeah. urban logistics zones has already shown significant double digit rental growth. It's always the case that it happens in the US first, and then the UK follows, and then continental Europe usually follows a little bit later. And you've started to see that significantly in London and Paris already, mm. where the rental growth is really getting pushed up. Yeah. And our projection is that for the next couple of years, that rental growth in continental Europe, throughout continental Europe, will be much more pronounced. Yeah. But it's a difficult strategy to enact, isn't it? Because you're not buying big boxes. You're not buying stuff off of people like Tritax. You're buying smaller last mile warehouses and you're having to do that with lots of boots on the ground in many different european cities but luckily you've had those boots on the ground previously through all of the other mixed use plays that you've been undertaking over the years exactly. which has made that switch 100 percent. so it's kind of a natural structure for us to have these local offices obviously the key thing as always is finding the right people and so building Teams in six different countries, it, you know, it's something that we did gradually. We didn't open the six offices all at the same time. We yeah. started off our strategy in Italy and Spain, and then we moved into France, then we moved into the Netherlands, then we moved into Germany, and then into Poland. And we'll continue that growth uh, over the next couple of years into more countries. As you point out, you absolutely need those teams on the ground to be able to source the right product and to be able to make these acquisitions because they're small, as you say. So if you want to scale it up, you need to do these acquisitions almost on a weekly basis, Yeah, which means you need a really well-oiled system, a system of, you know, analyzing these deals, pricing them, doing the approval processes. And, and moving, and moving all of quickly. And moving very quickly. Moving quickly. Exactly. I mean, we've talked about sheds. Let's talk about beds. So residential has always been a part of the historic Mayor Bergman DNA. It's a big part of the Mark DNA. And you launched a European platform called DOMA. And DOMA, D-O-M-A, is looking at different rented housing strategies across different European geographies. How has that been playing out? And what's your mindset there? It seems like a similar mindset to urban logistics, where you're focusing on these defensive income streams counter-cyclical investments that yeah. are now tapping into wider pools of capital that's being allocated to um, the... Uh, yeah, really, that's really true. So I think if you take one step back, I think what we felt we really needed to develop, you know, several years ago was a real core strength as a business that you can then leverage that core strength to build different platforms. And the core strength in our mind was we need to build a system where we can aggregate smaller assets very efficiently because that's going to be more difficult for competitors to replicate. You know, it's not just hiring one person who's good at hotels and then you lose that person and suddenly you've got to replace him with somebody who's mm. also really good at hotels. But also you hire someone in hotels and suddenly next year labs are flavor of the month in your hotel. For, 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 exactly. So for us building up a core process skill in the business rather than just the skill in a specific sector, to us that's something that will give us much more longevity as a business much more resilience as a business than, you know, just hiring the right person for one strategy and that works out, but then the rest maybe doesn't. So so that was really the key behind initially launching via outlets, then the way we built up Crossbay and the way we're building up Doma. Coming back to your point, you're, that's absolutely right. So the infrastructure behind Doma is the same infrastructure that we use for Crossbay. So we have local teams in all the countries where we invest Doma. 
it's very granular. It's you know more granular in some ways than Crosspay in terms of the sizes of the assets that we buy. But that also makes us more competitive because it's just more difficult for yeah. competitors to basically get that close to the assets and to execute that strategy mm. so quickly. And how important is having that operational platform there? Because again, that is, it's an increasingly competitive landscape. And we often talk about Resi on these podcasts. And as people know, me and Blackstock, you know, we've been involved with all manner of residential firms over the years and different brands and businesses. And it's something that we're very passionate about supporting. But the landscape is hyper competitive now in a way that it wasn't 10, even five years ago. So in terms of who you are looking to compete with, what do you see as being your advantage? Well, let's put it like this. So we're not doing it to compete with people, right? We're doing it because we see good, strong, long-term value hmm. and growth in the main European rental housing markets. That's the key thing. Well, it's the world's biggest asset class. Isn't exactly, it? exactly. And it's super resilient. You know, I think that in a high inflation environment, it's a good inflation hedge for people. Our expectation is that rates, obviously interest rates will go up and that that will put some pressure on people with high percentage of mortgages or high leverage. Yeah. But we think in the sectors that we're focusing on, which is sort of more the mid-market that will be less pronounced mm. than in the affordable market. Mm. So we like the market. We think that there's a huge amount of mm. long-term potential there. And crucially, you're not developing. You're buying existing stock. Correct. We're not developing. And I think you know, developing just brings a whole other level of risk, planning risk, construction cost risk. You can imagine now with mm. what's happening on the inflation and the, and the supply yeah. chain side, that's very difficult now. You know, I think it's impossible now, for instance, as an example in Amsterdam, to develop anything new because of the combination of construction costs, supply chain issues, and planning regulations. Mm. So you could, you could build some boats, maybe. <laughs> that's still possible. <laughs> so then the key thing becomes, how do you access this market yeah. without just going head-on with really well-capitalized major competitors like Blackstone, Greystar, et cetera, et cetera, mm. uh, pension funds. And similar to Crossbay, the best way for us to do that is to play, it, again, to our strength, which is our ability to aggregate really small assets, but aggregate them really quickly at an attractive price point. So we set up teams in the Netherlands, France, and Germany, and we've been buying residential in those markets now for about two years. But literally, some of the transactions that we're buying on a weekly basis are, you know, 400,000 euros in one investment, and other ones might be, you know, 5 million euros. So you have to do a huge amount of deals to be able to deploy a significant amount of capital. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, identical to Crossbay, we've been able to do that. And that means a few things. It means that, you know, you come in at a more attractive pricing point because obviously if you're buying mostly from locals yeah, rather yeah. than buying from, you know, let's say a large local institutional investor. So you're buying from individual private owners that are selling these buildings. They mm. might have, you know, they might want to take some profit off the table. They might just have a shift in strategy. And then this sort of been a, a skill that you learn from Heinz, which is basically buy smart. I, I think that's always key. Yeah, I think the key thing is, you know, if you can make a big percentage of your return on the buy, when you buy something, that's much better than buying something at full value in the hope that you can... Yeah, I and mean, we were talking about this the other week with Giles Mackey, who's be familiar to everyone as the founder of HomeTrack, which yeah. he sold to Zoopla. He's got a new eye-buying business called Upsticks. And again, this is exactly what we were talking exactly about. The same. Exactly. So you're 100% right. I think that allows us to come in at a price point that's already very attractive. Most of those properties are existing, which means that you know the rents are significantly below market in a lot of these locations because they're existing buildings where a tenant has been in place for several years already. And those rents have been going up significantly over the last five years. It's in yeah. Amsterdam since 2015. 
And that rental growth will continue because there's no new construction taking place. So, you know, we see that trend of being able to continue to benefit from that almost inevitable rental growth that's still ahead of us. We see that continuing. And that's why we think it is together with logistics, it is probably the most resilient sector for the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah. And let's just talk about the UK because you do have a different residential strategy here, which is a bit more focused on development. Well, it's a blend thing. It's going to be a blend of, of development, forward funding and investment. Correct, correct. But you're going to be partnering with the fantastic guys over at Hub, which has uh, been incubated by Squarespace over the years. And Hub have been one of the absolute pioneers of developing UK build to rent over the years. And they've done many things with the guys at Uncle. And, and you're, you're obviously friends with Ryan. And they've done uh, a number of other projects with him and with the guys at M&G Real Estate. And Hub have really made that their own space over the last years. And you're going to be partnering with them on a new strategy that's going to be, be properly unveiled a bit later on in the year, won't it? Yeah, I think that the interesting thing there is there is a lot of competition for UK BTR, as you know. Uh, you know, if you're looking at forward funding, it's probably more about who has the lowest funding cost and who can pay the best price. And if it's developments, it's really who is the best delivery partner for that development. And I think the thing that, the same thing that you said just before about the rental housing in continental Europe, the key thing is to be able to buy well. So when you enter a, a new transaction, right? Because on the forward funding, the only thing you're really competing on with people is on, on the entry cap rate. And so if, if you're prepared to pay a 3% cap rate, but somebody else is prepared to pay a 2.8 cap rate, you know, then the guy who offers 2.8, the company that offers 2.8 gets it, yeah. not the one yeah. that offers 3. What the platform with Hub allows us to do is basically benefit from their ability to buy sites off market at really attractive price mm. points. And so where we're not competing with other people, it's not yeah. just about who offers the best price, but it's really about their ability to identify the best sites, where we feel the best yeah. rental growth is, where we think the best institutional mm. interest will be. And also deliver. I mean, that's the other critical And, and then the second part of it's delivery. <laughs> Sorry. Exactly. No, 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 you're 100% right. Can the second part is delivery. So point one is buying the right site at the right value, at the right price. And then point two is obviously the delivery. So, you know, planning in the UK, as you know, is extremely difficult. And it's not getting any easier with affordable housing pressures and everything else. Yeah. And then there's, you know, the current problems of supply chain again and mm. construction cost inflation. Mm. So you really want to have the most sort of weather tried and tested development partner on board to help guide you through mm. the process. Well, that's going to be exciting to, to watch that grow and blossom. And, and I think that would be a great, great partnership. And, and you also share many traits with the guys at Hub when it comes to design and, and that, that fascination yeah, for, for detail. And, and I think that will really stand it apart in the market. I mean, let's bring things to a close. We've, we've taken up far too much of your time this morning, Marcus. If we had to pick three prevailing trends that you think are going to really define the next couple of years, what would you say they're going to be? I mean, you know, you've obviously lived through a number of different cycles. You, you obviously saw a number as a kid where you were cutting ribbons and... and uh, <laughs> making handprint art in your playroom. <laughs> um, but what are some of the things that you think are, are going to be really defining of the real estate world over the next few years as we come out of COVID and we hopefully yep. you know, live through everything else that's happening? I mean, I think the most important one, which obviously you know, affects all of us on a day-to-day -day basis and particularly our kids and grandchildren, is the environment. You know, I think that's the most single most important trend. I think the the need for real estate players, whether you're an investor, developer, tenant, doesn't really matter, but the need to remain ahead of the curve on that, I think is going to be increasingly important. 
There's going to be a huge amount of retrofitting that's going to need to be done on existing buildings, which is a huge sector, as you know, and the cost involved in that. And in many cases, that cost won't be profitable for people. So so you have to be really smart about you know how you build that whole ESG story into your business. Yeah, and that's something you're very heavily focused on with all of the different platforms that you have on the canvas, so to speak. Look, I think the second the second trend is definitely the potential risks of a stagflation environment, which everybody's talking about, which means inflation and a recession taking place at the same time, which I think will bring huge opportunity, but it will also make it a lot more challenging than the last couple of years. So I think it's putting yourself in a position where you can seize the opportunities in a very challenging, mm. volatile environment. And, you know, obviously not get wiped out by it. Mm. So but I that, but that volatility arguably will bring new pools of capital to the table, won't it? I think it will bring new pools of capital to the table, but some sectors and businesses will suffer significantly. Usually stagflation goes hand in hand with unemployment. Yeah. So, you know, that's not helpful from an office sector perspective or from a residential sector perspective. So you have to be careful what sectors you focus on, what locations, what cities, so you don't get too much exposure to it. I think the third trend that I think is really important in the real estate space, I think, is size. Uh, it's important everywhere, but it's really important in the sense that the bigger players are aggregating more and more of the capital. And yeah, so yeah. I think the need to grow and the need to diversify your business is more important now than it's ever mm. been. And having specialisms as well and having those operational specialisms, uh, which would... I, I think super important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, bringing things to a close, final question, who in the art world should we be looking out for? So for people like me that are obviously music obsessives, but know very little about art, you tell me and, and, and I'll give you a mixtape uh, of some, <laughs> I'll give you an old-fashioned 90s mixtape of some of the bands that okay, I've been perfect. looking I'd love to. That. But, but, but give us two or three recommendations of, of people that they could be investing in on the art side of things. And we'll maybe we'll have a, we'll start an art cast with Marcus Mayer. That, that's what we'll do. So well, one interesting thing, if you look at the last couple of sort of flagship auctions, it's interesting. It's like real estate in a way. So the yeah. things that sold really well are the really famous, established, either live or no longer live artists, people like De Koning, Bryce Marden, Cy Twombly, uh, Basquiat, as you know. So at the very, very high end, and the best works of those artists are, you know, at records highs across the board. The other part of the art world that I think is having a huge amount of interest now and, uh, and excitement is younger artists, ethnically diverse artists, and female artists. And so it's, you know, playing into that whole diversity thing that's, I think, super relevant. And also giving people from other continents and countries in those other continents outside Europe and outside the US, focusing on those and giving them the opportunity to develop their work and to be present in major museums. Yeah, I think there's a huge trend there. And a lot of those shows are completely sold out to global museums even before the show opens. And it's presumably it's forcing the art world to open itself up and be a little bit less elitist, which is a problem in sports, problem in music. It's a problem right across. But I think all the big, like, if you think about the auction houses and the galleries, you know, they're already very, very present in that. As a gallery now, if you're not focused on younger artists and, you know, ethnically diverse artists and female, with a big focus on female artists, then I think you're, you know, you're way behind the curve. So all of the big galleries, all of the big auction houses are very, very focused on that. It's where you see, you know, to be honest with you, the best performance in terms of auction results. Mm. You look at the last few sort of flagship auctions in London, New York, Paris, etc. Asia, obviously, is a huge market as well. Mm. For me, that's the most exciting new part of the market. Now, a lot of these artists are very young. Some of them are in their mid-20s. And so they're at the beginning of a very sort of 
potentially, hopefully, long career. And so they will evolve their work and everything else. And so, you know, you've got a bit less outlook than if you invest with somebody that's already very established and is at the end of their career. But I think that's kind of what makes it exciting as well. And some of these artists are very talented already. It's not like they're still developing to sort of be in their prime in their 40s and 50s. And I think that's what's attracting a lot of museums and professional collectors to them. So I would focus on that. And obviously, if you want to go to the auctions, you know, there's the new now auctions and things like that at Phillips and Sotheby's where, you know, you have different price points, anything from sort of 5,000 to 10,000 pounds up to much bigger numbers. But yeah, and then it's, it's all, you know, at the end of the day with art, like with real estate, it's all about having a good eye for art and genuinely liking the art. I think that's super important. Like you have to be able to see it on your wall and wanting it on your wall rather than just thinking that it might be a good investment. Yeah, and, well, I mean, that's kind of where we started the conversation exactly. building. So a natural close to the conversation and a, and a great place to end. And, and obviously uh, we'll include some of the links to some of these upcoming artists in, in the accompanying article. But obviously uh, we will now have to secure Marcus Mayer, a regular art cast discussion with, with some of these up, up, upcoming artists and it will give me a great opportunity to travel the world and learn about upcoming artists so I'm looking forward to getting on the plane and doing that but lovely to see you as ever Marcus thank Thanks you very you. much for coming Marcus Mayer founder of Mark and you can subscribe to Propcast on Apple on Spotify on SoundCloud just search Propcast on the internet and it will come up leave a review if you've enjoyed Marcus's conversation and uh, if you are an upcoming artist and, and want your stuff hung on the wall at the Whiteley, then drop us a note as well and, and, and we'll obviously uh, consider that. But thanks again for listening. Thank you to Marcus Mayer. I have been Andrew Teacher, the founder at Blackstock Consulting. Thank you for listening and we'll see you again soon. Hold up. 